Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 29th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Carrie Ann Farrell Hines, president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California, a multipartisan organization, will bring us from the multipartisan good old days of her organization's founding to the present. Everything will be in play. In the second segment, California Assemblywoman Kati Petrie-Norris, representing Irvine and nearby cities, will reflect on the latest legislative session. It's her first. More of everything on the table from the committee rooms and town halls to the assembly floor back to the campaign season. We'll be right back after a short station break. Thank you for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the first segment is Carrie Ann Farrell Hines, president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California. She is an attorney by trade and currently works as a consultant on community affairs and strategic development with the Public Policy Institute of Santa Monica College. Carrie Ann worked on Capitol Hill as a legislative assistant for the American Civil Liberties Union, spent several years practicing in general business litigation, family law, and public interest agencies before making the switch to political and policy-related work. She is a gubernatorial appointee to the California Board of Accountancy and director of the National Women's Political Caucus, L.A. Westside Chapter of Political Action Committee, and serves on several boards, including the AC. Of Southern California affiliate, Close the Gap Californians, Commissioner on the Los Angeles County Commission for Women. Carrie Ann Hines completed her Bachelor's of Arts in English at UC Berkeley and her Juris Doctor, her JD, her law degree at Loyola Law School. She comes to us today right after a meeting, a break. We might get breaking news from, uh, she comes to us from West LA. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Carrie Ann Farrell Hines. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk with your show. Well, thank you. So the grassroots are having, I would say, a sustained, a protracted heart stretch. What? Let's let's let our minds go back to those good old days in 1971 when the founders. I'm going to name a few of them. I'm not sure I'm going to be exhaustive. Bella Abzug, Florence Kennedy, Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hamer, Betty Friedan, and the one still living founders, Gloria Steinman and Jill Ruckel's House founded the National Women's Political Caucus. Talk a bit about that, those beginnings, and the charter therefrom. Uh, okay, well, we started in 1971 um, as, as a part of the effort to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. Uh, and after Congress failed to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in 1970, um, this esteemed group of women that also included Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton oh, yes. and, uh, and Fannie Lou Hamer and also... Um, Saloma uh, Shalmet 
Lesner, Shamit Lesner, who is also still living and who was an anti-corporal punishment uh, activist and um, early feminist, uh, they were so frustrated by the failed efforts to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed that they started the National Women's Political Caucus in an effort to increase uh, women's political power. And uh, after our founding in 1971, they were able to increase um, the number of women who were serving in appointed and elected positions uh, significantly. Um, you know, they saw, you know, double-digit increases in the numbers of women who were running for and getting elected to municipal offices and to the uh, to state legislatures, um, but also getting appointed to important decision-making bodies uh, across the country. You know, so that's where we started. And uh, as you mentioned, we started off as a multipartisan organization because um, the effort to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed was a, you know, there were both Democratic and Republican women, women from, um, from third parties that were involved in this effort. You know, that was how important and significant that it was. Uh, so we have now expanded to have caucuses around the country, and uh, here in California, where I'm the president of the California caucus, we actually have 10 caucuses across the state where those local caucuses uh, support efforts to recruit, train, and support women uh, seeking election and appointment to municipal offices uh, around the state. And to get a sense nationally, California is one of other member caucuses. I just will run through Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Kentucky, Massachusetts, Maryland, Missouri, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Tennessee, Texas, and Washington. Are there targets to keep expanding, uh, targets on the horizon for NWPC? Yes, there are. Uh, actually, Virginia is poised to become the home to our newest uh, state caucus, uh, there are a number of women in that state who are working uh, really heavily to flip the Virginia legislature because Virginia could potentially be the last state that's needed to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. Okay. Wow. <laughs> and Virginia's having their general election uh, next month. So and next, it's next a bellwether yeah. for next week. This uh well, that is that will be next month, yes. And so they're going to be uh, not only a bellwether, but a, a chance for NWPC to be expanding. Wow, that's exciting to think of a, a one more vote for the ERA. <laughs> so I, I don't want to spend too much time, but I want to get an idea because it's not on enough people's radars. And I want to know if NWPC's working on this. The Article 5 convention, it's only six states away from convening a convention that could, like, erase. It could take the etch-a-sketch of the Constitution and erase the whole thing. Is the NWPC working on that? What is moving toward that being convened? We're not, uh, because our focus is on, is really been on the Equal Rights Amendment, the passage okay. of the Equal Rights Amendment, and the convening of a uh, Article 5 convention you know, would have an impact on our ability yes. to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. But, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, there was a focus on the three-state strategy rather than the convening um, an Article 5 convention. So the national popular vote effort has yes. not really been on our, on our radar as much. 
But uh, turnout and engagement of particularly women voters is something, though, that we are focused on nationally, uh, generally, but also particularly in California and locally here in, in Los Angeles County as well. Okay, so how much autonomy uh, would you say California has? Because there there's different issues here, not just excessive wildfires and earthquakes and, uh, and all, but is, we have a different kind of a legislative dynamic going on. How m- much autonomy does the chapters throughout California have versus around the country? A lot. The national organization focuses on uh, national elections, so they focus on the state, uh, on uh, Congress, and also making endorsements for uh, the presidential elections. The states are left to, um, are left with autonomy to engage around uh, statewide elections, and then the, where we have our local caucuses, the local caucuses focus on our local elections. So we are very autonomous in our ability to recruit women, to endorse women, to take positions on issues, provided that they do not, you know, conflict with our mission to support pro-choice candidates and to get the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. So our state caucus endorses candidates who are running for statewide office and who are running for the state assembly and for the state senate. Uh, and then for um, our local caucuses, do the endorsements and support candidates who are running for city councils, who are running for county boards of supervisors, and who are seeking appointment to local agencies. So, uh, so we really are, are allowed to, you know, operate in the way that we need to to increase women's participation in so, those agencies. So I'm hearing it's a down-ticket proposition National Women's Political Caucus is involved with, among, and that's so, so important. So I mentioned in your introduction your own affiliation with the ACLU. Are NWPC chapters throughout the state working and coalescing with a good many uh, organizations like the ACLU? Like the ACLU, like organizations like Close the Gap California, like Emerge California, uh, organizations that are focused on uh, increasing uh, access to, um, to voting, access to serving in office, and then also on policies that affect women and girls around the state. Uh, We do, it is, our coalition partners are very important to us uh, spreading the word about our work, but also in, you know, increasing our um, power and our strength when we are advocating for policies or advocating for on behalf of our leaders. So I know Emmy Allison, founder of She the People. I think she's based in, I think, the L.A. area. Are you at all coalescing with She the People? Uh, I, I believe they're based out of the Bay Area. Okay. But where we can, yeah, where we can, we do work with organizations like that, mostly to identify women who, are, um, who have the, you know, ability to serve, uh, you know, there's a saying, there's a you know statistic that women have to be asked uh, eight times before oh. they will decide to run for office. Uh, a man will get up in the morning and look at himself in the mirror and say, you know, I could do this. But a woman has to be asked and she has to think about it. And so it is um, our partners help us to find women who are already 
you know, leaders in their communities, leaders of companies and nonprofit organizations, and to, you know, help them to appreciate that they are the kind of people that we need serving on our city councils, running for mayor, serving in the state legislature, and then training them and then getting them the campaign support that they need so that they can run a successful campaign. Women run, women win elections at the same rate as men when they decide to run. Women just don't run for office at the same rate as men. So uh, we are really making sure that women are um, seeing themselves as political leaders and then, you know, taking that step to, you know, to represent their communities. For those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader, and my guest is Carrie Ann Farrell Hines, president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California, a multi-partisan organization in the throes here, in the thick of this campaign season. I want to know, are your ranks, we can talk about the statewide, the ranks noticeably expanding, and in which demographic areas are you seeing the greatest growth, Carrie Ann? Engagement is definitely growing, and we are really uh, prioritizing expanding our reach into areas of the state like the Inland Empire okay. and uh, the Coachella Valley and here in the Southern California areas where um, we are seeing, we haven't seen as much representation of women in elected office but we're seeing more women who want to get involved and who want to, you know, to get engaged. So we don't have caucuses in those areas right now, but we have endorsed in races out in those areas. We've conducted trainings with some of our partner organizations in those areas, and and that's where we really see um, some more expansion um, for us. We also have seen additional engagement in the Central Valley, so we have a very oh. vibrant uh, caucus in Fresno. In 2018, we saw uh, several seats where women uh, either competed and, you know, competed successfully or were had successful challenges uh, of races in the, you know, state assembly seats in the Central Valley. So that's an area where we are continuing, we've expanded in, you know, recent years and we're continuing to to see a market impact in women's representation. Carrie Ann, forgive me for forgetting her name. And uh, the former mayor of Fresno affiliate, she's identified as a Republican. Is she a member of MWPC? I would have to look up who that is. Okay. I know who you're talking yes, about. Yes, I know. I that. believe that she is still engaged with, with NWPC she, Fresno's caucus. Um, we actually have another former Fresno City Councilwoman, uh, Karen Humphrey, who also ran for mayor and was heavily involved in Fresno politics. And she still serves on our state board as our, she's our, you know, most recent president, she served before myself, and she currently serves as the chair of our public policy committee and is also um, a leader in our Sacramento caucus. Uh, but I'd have to look her name up, but yes, I'll, I'll she look is it still up. engaged. Yeah. <laughs> because, I, I mean, I, she is, she's a rising star. It's Ashley Swearingen. That's her name. That's the one. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So yes, is yes. she a so, part? Yes. Uh, so Ashley Swearingen, you know, she's not pro-choice. 
And so, okay. uh, yeah, so that is a challenge, but she is a, um, a supporter of mentoring women and encouraging women's engagement politically. So, uh, so, you know, so she's not engaged with our caucus, but there are a number of women who are engaged in Fresno politics who are involved with our caucus there and who are part of the effort to increase women's, you know, engagement and representation in the Central Valley. So in the demographic sense, I'm thinking also not just because this is a college radio station, but are you making a concerted effort to start kind of sowing this leadership seed with student campus organizations? Uh, yes, this uh, has been a focus of our organization for many years, and we have partnered with organizations like Feminist Majority who have really vibrant voter engagement and get-out-the-vote uh, activities, particularly around Election Day. Uh, so those are the times when we really see in you know an increase in the in in uh, in engagement of co- women on college campuses of campuses of colleges and universities, and uh, and we have seen kind of an ebbing and flowing of the level of engagement of women at you know various colleges and universities, but it is an it is a and it is an element of our support. It seems like it's a good fit for you, especially yes. with uh, there's, you know, n- additional sort of legislative uh, accomplishments that deal with reproductive choice being more accessible on the campuses, sort of tacking on with a lot of those kinds of breakthroughs that uh, might might uh, set you up for a good discussion with uh, getting, seeding new leaders that are um, around on the campuses, getting them, getting them hooked on, not just voting, but on leading <laughs> Yes, on, on on engagement, and there have been a number of organizations who we partner with who are who are targeting college campuses uh, for women leaders to to run for office. So I know this is a a new story breaking that Congresswoman Katie Hill resigned over the weekend. It was kind of a surprise. And so I don't know if you, Carrie Ann Hines, have any response to. The let's say the standard applied to one woman, while we see a different standard applied to men in elective office. Can you do you want to talk to any part about her resignation today on this show? Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention uh, that you know we are disappointed in you know in the outcome of Katie Hill's resignation. You know, it's really. It's a disappointment in that she obviously used some poor judgment in engaging with a subordinate while campaigning, and you know there are some you know moral and ethics questions that you know still exist. Um, that said, however, there's not room for a woman to err and attain redemption in politics. Unfortunately, there is a double standard when it comes to um, how women are, you know, held accountable versus men when, you know, it comes to their ethical indiscretion. And it's an example of how there are inequities in how women are, are viewed in, in political life. There are definitely tones of phobias towards sexual orientation, undertones of these kinds of phobias that 
are present in the issue. Um, and cyber harassment element there is grossly underappreciated. And that's an issue that Senator Kamala Harris raised recently yes. and is attempting to address through some federal legislation. But what we have to shift focus right now to is trying to make sure that we protect that seat. And there is a state assemblywoman, Christy Smith, who has already announced her intention to run for that seat. And she has been endorsed by NWPC California for her state race. And I know that she will be uh, looking to get support from our national organization, which does endorsement in federal elections. So we are you know, keeping our eyes open for how we can ensure that seat stays in the hands of a woman who supports our mission to protect reproductive freedom and to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. So, Carrie Ann, when you're talking about the inequities of what standards are applied to women in elective office versus men, I guess that sort of speaks to why women are taking longer to decide whether or not they should run for office. They're they're dealing, I mean, men think, oh, not, no problem, I'm in, I'm jumping, and women have more to process because they're mindful of those inequities that you're calling out here. Yes, unfortunately, this is a setback for us in terms of convincing women. We'll have to ask a woman nine times or ten times now to run for office. Maybe. As opposed to the, to the seven or eight. But kidding aside, uh, it's true. Women do uh, think about all of these other factors before they make the decision, and this is just another example of why women may be hesitant. Uh, and also, it's, an, it's something for us to think about in terms of how technology has changed the way that women and men, uh, you know, engage in society. And we're now seeing some evidence of how that may have an impact on their ability to present themselves as viable candidates. They're going to be thinking twice about, well, what is in my past and what is present on my social media accounts exactly. that may you know, undermine my, my uh, ability to win office. Do women think about that more than men? That you know, we'll, we'll have to see, but the trend has been that women have been reticent and this probably will make them a bit more reticent. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Carrie Ann Farrell Hines. She's president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California. And I'd like to ask about the primary season. It's up very soon. My experience, Carrie Ann, is that California is not ready for March 3rd. Are you, what efforts are you, concerted efforts are you making to engage people with this three-month expediting of our typical primary season in California? Well, as you mentioned in my introduction, our local caucuses are trying to hold public education forums to educate our membership and community leaders about the changes in how Californians will vote. Uh, L.A. County particularly is one of the largest voting uh, districts in the country. It's larger than 42 states. And and I know that here in L.A. County we have 400,000 women who are eligible to vote who do not vote. 
Uh, so this is wow. a really critical and important role that we're taking on to try to engage voters and, and educate voters, particularly women, about the importance of the March primary. Uh, here in L.A. County, as I said, that we're trying to educate voters about um, the changing ways in which they're going to vote. Right. Uh, actually, uh, voting will open in mid-February right. in L.A. County, and voters are not going to go to their local fire station no. or their you know neighbor's garage. They're going to have voting centers around the county that they can vote at. And so that's requiring a lot of education, uh, but it also is requiring campaigns, candidates, to get familiar with these changes so that they can be prepared to, you know, change up their get-out-the-vote strategies, and also it's going to require them to start campaigning and canvassing in January and February when, you know, it'll it's dark earlier and it may be the weather may be a little more inclement rather than them doing it in the spring. So like I said, our caucuses are really trying to, to educate folks so that they can be prepared because March will be upon us before we know it. Very fast. And now adjacent to the largest county in the country is the fifth largest county in the country, Orange County, here where we are. And we certainly, we're at KUCI, we're working with our registrar voters, Neil Kelly. He's being very proactive in getting this word out about the early voting opportunities and the early primary. So 2020 commemoration of women acquiring the right to vote and is upon us shortly and then the NWPC in 2021 will also be having an anniversary can you talk to any of of anything in particular that you might be uh, celebrating coming up yes so um, in commemoration of women the hundred the centennial women gaining the right to vote uh, NWPC California is going to host a series of trainings to you know, encourage more women to not only seek elected office, but also to seek appointed office, because those are ways in which women can be influential in the legislative process without having to engage in political campaigns. Those are very important ways to serve. We also are are looking at having a celebration uh, later in the summer uh, here in the Southern California area to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment. And we're looking to do that in conjunction with uh, other agencies, governmental and community organizations that are uh, looking to commemorate it as well. As for the 50th anniversary of NWPC in 2021, uh, we have already started the planning for a celebration in Washington, D.C., which was the birthplace of our organization in the summer of, of 2021. And maybe we will have a woman president uh, in the White House. That would be a fitting way for us to celebrate our 50th anniversary is to have finally cracked that glass ceiling to the White House. So uh, we're optimistic. We're hopeful and optimistic that we'll have a lot to celebrate in 2021. So when we're talking about all of these opportunities to raise your profile, 
to engage women. I'd like to just close with the last question about are there particular other kinds of issues in terms of health care, women's health, public health, the planet's health, any gun safety health. Is there any of that that specifically is a part of the charter that you see engaging women in? Well, actually, as I mentioned, we uh, launched our NWCC California launched a public policy committee that is putting us, engaging us in the in Sacramento. And so what we've been doing this year is we focused on uh, advocating on behalf of bills that were authored and introduced by women endorsed by NWPC. And uh, we had 11 bills that we were following and advocating on in Sacramento. And uh, we're excited and proud to share that five of those bills were passed by and signed in the law by Governor Newsom. And another one was included in the governor's adopted budget. That one was a bill an, an effort that was carried by Assemblywoman Christina Garcia to eliminate taxation of feminine hygiene products, and the governor did include in his budget funds so that those products could be exempted from taxation. Uh, Senator Connie Leva's bill, SB 24, uh, was passed and signed by the governor, and that requires access to abortion by medication on uh, Cal State and UC campuses across the state. So women will be able to access those services at on-campus student health centers. Senator Holly Mitchell, her bill, SB 464, uh, was passed and signed by the governor, and it's the California Dignity and Pregnancy and Childbirth Act. And that seeks to address the rising uh, rate of maternal mortality in the African-American community and to address those, the inequities that are resulting in those rising rates. And another notable win that's really consistent with our mission is AB 931, which was introduced by Assemblywoman Tasha Borner Horvath. And uh, that one was signed by the governor, and it seeks to move us towards gender parity in the appointments of boards and commissions, not only at the state, but also down at the local level. And it requires us to gather data about the uh, gender representation on boards and commissions around the state. So our public policy priorities are really, again, reproductive health care, access to reproductive health care for women, also on uh, access to represent access to equal access to services, and also really increasing opportunities for gender equity, gender parity in, in office. So we've been able to really focus our efforts on that in the state uh, legislature, and we are going to just have to keep working on that as we go forward into the next election season and into the next legislative session. All right. Well, Carrie Ann, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been lovely having you post us on what's happening. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was really a pleasure to talk with you thank today. You. Thank you. My guest was Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines, president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California, will return with... Kati Petrie-Norris, California Assemblywoman representing the 74th District. Stay tuned.
thanks for staying tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest, and I've been wanting to have her on for quite some time because she's been uh, she's been there for us on the scene in uh, quite the interesting legislative session in Sacramento. My next guest is Cadi. Petrie Norris, she's California's Assemblywoman representing our 74th district, including Coastal Orange County communities of Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Irvine, Laguna Woods, and Laguna Beach. She serves as chair of the Accountability and Administrative Review Committee, and she's authored a good many bills about which we'll be talking today. And you might even see her at a grocery store chain strike. That's where I think I last saw her uh, in the summer. Prior to being elected, she was a small business owner and served on the Housing and Human Services Committee of Laguna Beach. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Economics and English at Yale. She comes to us today. I believe it's from Sacramento. I am calling you from the district office today, Claudia. Oh, good morning. You're okay. Good morning. And she's previously on the show during the 2018 primary, so that's why I say welcome back to Ask a Leader, Assemblywoman Cadi Petrie Norris. Well, thank you so much for having me, Claudia. It's such a pleasure to be able to catch up with you again. Oh, well, thank you. So I'd like. First, to being elected as a member of the supermajority in the capital, but residing in a competitive district, it must pose some interesting complexities and dynamics and sort of political multitasking, does it? Well, I think I, I went to Sacramento to represent the people of the 74th Assembly District. So I've been really focused on the priorities and the issues that I think my constituents care about and really proud of everything that we've been able to accomplish. We've, uh, I've been able to get 11 bills signed into law, and I've also been able to bring back millions of dollars of funding to our district and to Orange County. So, reflecting on the session, your work, starting with your committee work, um, we can go through a number of bills. I'm looking at one of them is the Assembly Bill 65, investing in green infrastructure along the California coast in order to combat sea level rise. What would you like to say to that? Well, I'm glad you asked about AB 65. This was the very first piece of legislation that I introduced back in December. And because we all know California really is a global leader on climate change. We are confronting the climate crisis and ensuring that we can pass this beautiful community on to our children and our grandchildren. And we've set some of the world's most ambitious climate goals. As we work to achieve those goals, though, we must also safeguard California, which means developing strategies to adapt to climate change and strategies to mitigate the impact. And nowhere is that more true than right here on the California coast. California coast is 840 miles, breathtaking beauty, come to nearly 70% of Californians, and it's a critical engine of our economy. But all of this is under threat from sea level rise. Sea levels are projected to rise really rapidly over the course of this coming century. And if we don't act, California is going to lose more than half of our coastal habitat to rising waters and devastating flooding. It's putting millions of people and billions of dollars at risk. So my bill, AB 65, is a critical step in addressing the threat of sea level rise and will invest in natural infrastructure projects along the California coast. So is managed, I haven't read this, mea culpa, magna mea culpa, but um, is managed retreat a part of 
the language in that bill? My um, my bill does not address address that uh, that we are focused on uh, projects that utilize natural infrastructure. And some examples of natural infrastructure projects are dunes, which reduce flooding and replenish beaches, kelp and seagrass, which reduce wave impact, marshes, which can help reduce flooding and erosion. And these approaches, these strategies have been proven to be more cost-effective than traditional gray infrastructure and armoring strategies like seawalls. So this approach is innovative, it's resilient, and it's cost-effective. So an additional, uh, speaking of environmental aspects, there's a, I'm going to, this is going to be a, this is not a softball for you here. And that's not, I don't do softballs very often. So Assembly Bill 1752 that you authored ensures access to state bond and revolving funds to assist in the construction of the Doheny Ocean Desalination Project. I want to challenge anyone with desalination support about the all the externalities concerned, not only the massive energy tab there, but the environmental externalities of that. So how are you addressing all that? Because that's a big kind of endorsement that you're signed on to. So the Doheny desalination project is really unique and exciting. And it's actually a a win-win-win, which I think we always look for. So, you know, as you mentioned, there there's some uh, desalination projects where there's serious concerns about uh, the energy load and about the environmental impact. The Doheny Desal Project, because of its really unique location and the unique geology of the site, is able to use uh, something called slant well technology, and this is the recommended gold standard based on the California Ocean Plan in terms of mitigating concerns about the environmental impact uh, of, of the um, desal process. So because of the unique geology of the site, because of the unique features of this project, the project has universal support. It's got support from environmental groups, including Surfrider and uh Coastkeeper. Um, it's got support from the local community, and it's got support from uh, our local labor organizations as well, who are going to be engaged in the construction of the project. And because of the existence of the um, existing uh, existing infrastructure for the South Coast Water District, the um, the the energy load is going to be much less than in in some other desal project. So when I when I heard about the project and heard that it had universal support, that it was this you know, really unique and exciting program, at first it frankly sounded too good to be true, but uh, the more I dug into it, happily it, it is in fact true, and I'm really excited about this project. It is going to um, enable the South Coast Water District to uh, supply 70% of um, 70% of their needs right now all of the water for South Coast Water District all of the water is imported from the Colorado River and there's a lot of um, real concerns about that and real concerns about that dependency so this will create water independence for Orange County which is really exciting 
Well, and how are I'm not I'm not up on all of that technology. I think I've seen it brought at the applied innovation. There's been a represented from that, and they I think I've seen some of those diagrams and all that. I don't mm-hmm. know I don't know about where the salt deposits that are screened out of that the salt water supply, the ocean water. But I don't know where those are, and that's a concern as well as I. How do the rate payers how are how are are the rates adjusted to underwrite a project of this type? So um, again, in terms of the impact on the ratepayers, because of the the location of this project, yes. Um, so for some projects, there ends up being a huge cost differential between what they're currently paying and uh, what what you know the the, the desal water will provide. In this project, that's actually not the case. Um, which is why it's gotten very broad-based community support as well. Well, I've got to hand it to you that coast keepers and surf riders are—they've got, you know, so much integrity. And so, if they're they're signing on to that, then the homework was done <laughs> with the with the project to to bring them on board. Yes, like I said, I think you know we all like to look for the win-win, and sometimes that can be really hard to find. So oh. when you find it. It is really exciting to be able to support something like that and be part of bringing that to fruition. So for anyone just joining us, my guest is California Assemblywoman Cotty Petrie-Norris representing coastal Orange County communities of Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa, Newport, Irvine, Laguna Woods, and Laguna Beach. We're going through some of the legislation in this session, and I would like to bring up Assembly Bill 1264, which clarifies a vague telehealth law in order to reduce medically unnecessary barriers to telehealth. So talk about what that brings, and it's going to bring, it's going to certainly affect constituencies right here at UC Irvine. Yes, absolutely. So AB 1264, I worked on this piece of legislation with Planned Parenthood, and uh, this bill is going to enable them to make it easier for people to access birth control um, and contraceptive care on their smartphone. So Planned Parenthood has an app that can be used on a smartphone, and particularly for millennials and for students right now, people are used to accessing so many things on on, on an app. That's the way people live their lives now. And so they have just rolled out the app uh, once the governor signed AB 1264, which was... On uh, which was two weeks ago, they rolled out the app and it's already in circulation and in use and making it easier for, for everyone to, to access birth control, which um, which is a real, real positive. And there, there's actually, there's a lot of bills. I'm just trying to decide which ones to do <laughs> with our time. Well, how about Assembly Bill 963, which you also authored, signed into law by the governor. I know you talked to that Student Civic and Voter Empowerment Act because I'm all about on Ask a Leader, reminding everybody about March 3rd. So what's going to happen with AB 963 being codified? So uh, <laughs> That was AB a bad nine... pun. Uh, Cotty. <laughs> okay. Oh. <laughs> AB 963 is the 2019 Student Civic and Voter Empowerment Act, Um, and I'm really excited about this bill as well. What uh, what this bill 
will do is establish a position on each of our public colleges and community college campuses as a voter and civic engagement coordinator. Um, so it'll be a part-time position on each campus, and that person is going to be responsible for a couple of things. So number one, ensuring that voting dates are included in the official school calendar and publicized. Okay. Second, ensuring that there's there's updates and calls to action and information provided on social media so people know when and how they can vote on their college campus or nearby. Um, and three, they will put together at least three events a year that are designed to increase civic engagement. And um, one of the reasons I'm really excited about this is because we all know student voter turnout is is dismal. And we all say that we want to have the younger voice, the younger generation's voices engaged. And I think it's so important for that to happen so that we are shaping our future leaders for the state of California. And we need young voices to be part of our democratic process um, and excited that, that this is going to be one step in that direction. Well, that's a heady way of describing it. And I, I appreciate your putting the word dismal on that. And it does really heighten the sort of the urgency of getting them engaged in this process. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to speed dial after this interview, whether it's, it's going to be at the uh, the Dean of Students Office or where we're uh, going to see that position. And actually, I'm going to give them a, uh, that person is going to be on here several times. So um, I, well, then I think for me, one of the things that whenever I, I talk to students that I, that I say is political power is one of the most unique things in the world. So it's one of these few things where the more you use it, the more you have, right? So most things, you know, if I've got $100 and I use $10, I only have $90. But political power works the opposite way. If you show up, if you, if you vote, if you make your voices heard, if your representatives know, you're paying attention, then they care more about your issues, and they start paying attention to the things you care about. So that is my message. I mean, for you know all of our voting blocks, but particularly for students and young people, that political power, the more you use it, the more power you build and have. Oh, I, I like that analogy. I think uh, I'll, I'll include that in my... It'll replace my scold message about, I always voted. What are you guys doing? So (laughs) now um, I don't want to leave. There were several different town halls that you had. And I guess what I want to say, I'm going to make an editorial comment about your town halls. I'm not going to be able to get into some of the legislation that you're carrying that. But I just want to talk about the sort of the political dynamic going on is that the town halls, your activation in the state assembly is for, I'm going to speak as a constituent, not as a journalist for this editorial moment. It is an entirely different sensation to have electeds engaged in governing, being present in the district, and the sort of infantilizing sensibility we had with previous electeds, it is a different day. That's my editorial comment. So I'll leave it at that. So how about, would you talk to, uh, you're already campaigning for the, the March 3rd primary. I mean, the campaigning never ended, did it? Right. And I think the for me, one of the most important things that you know, our, that we do in this community is, 
community outreach and sharing information uh, and providing a resource to the people that we represent. So if people have questions or concerns, they can come to my office. They can come to one of our town hall meetings. They can come to any of our community meetings. And really and truly, I feel like my goal is to make government work better for the people that I represent. And we're here as a resource to do just that. And I think, uh, as you mentioned, the next election is already upon us. So the primary is in March 2020, and then the general election will be next November. So I'm just a little over a year away. I am running for re-election, and I think from my perspective, the, the most important thing that I can do to, to earn the vote of the people I represent is to keep doing a good job for them and to keep, keep delivering for our district and for Orange County. Well, and I guess we could say in the town halls, I, could, I must bring it up, that one of those was uh, pertained to your Assembly Bill 1128 that was the, on senior scams, and you talked about that in the second of your third t- three town halls that you put on in Irvine, just Irvine, last week. So um, that's a different demographic we're picking up than uh, engaging the students. So I I just wanted to um, say it, it is, it's a different feeling. And so are you, um, for for those listening on the streets and uh, any, well, last one last pitch for, uh, for the voters to begin looking at uh, their ballots, thinking they're down ballot, down ticket obligations, and then we'll close. Right, absolutely. As you said, the the primary is just around the corner, and it's so important that that everyone everyone vote, show up, and make your voices heard. Well, I want to thank you, Assemblywoman Kari Petrie Norse, for being on the show today. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you, Claudia. It's so wonderful to catch up with you. Thank you. So I've got a bunch of announcements for everybody, and we have so many announcements, including next week I'm going to have on Lauren Woods, conceptual artist, and Kimberly Meyer, curator. The two women are responsible for the current installation at UCI known as American Monument. And before we do that show, a few talks will be bringing you up to speed the 21-foot rule, Who Watches the Watchman? And that will be, uh, that's tonight at 4 to 5.30 at the law school. James Lamb is giving that talk. And then another talk will be examining histories of resistance to police violence through the lens of the community. That'll be on Friday, November 1st. And Courtney Eccles will be talking. She's a social ecology PhD candidate. And a few other announcements I'm going to breeze through here is the Tapestry Women's Rights Action Group Community Event, the IF Project. It will be on this Saturday, November 2nd. Doors open at 5.30, and they're they're going to run a 90-minute film after 6 o'clock. Then I want to bring your attention to the Mexican Consulate in Santa Ana has a sizable roster of events, celebrations, all over Orange County around the Dia de los Muertos, starting with the October 30th, and it goes through November 7th. So check out their various pages, the Semana Global Mexico or the Consulate Mexico in Santa Ana. So if Halloween is your thing, boo, talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>